What are you going to watch? It's 1986, and it seems like there's not a day that goes by without some monumental sporting moment. It's an incredible era. Wayne Gretzky and the Edmonton Oilers, Michael Jordan and the Bulls, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, the San Francisco 49ers, the Chicago Bears, but also individual performances in the world of tennis and golf, and a young new boxer taking the world by storm. By 1986, we've already had four Olympic Games, two summer and two winter. It feels like an era where you don't want to miss a thing. With so many cable channels and more access to sports than ever before, what will the next great moment be? I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dress, consume, and connected. And today, it's a look back on the decade that produced some of the greatest sporting moments of all time. Sports are a unique thing. They really are the last true reality television. The outcome of some games and events can be so outlandish and unthinkable that no TV or movie writer would dare think them up because they just seem too absurd. But that's what we get with sports. Moments that shock us, moments that defy logic, and ultimately, moments that are unforgettable. And the 1980s provided plenty of them. With thousands of games and events over the decade, narrowing it down to 10 is almost impossible. But today, I'll make my attempt to look back at 10 of the most significant sporting moments of the decade. Among other things, I'll cover hockey, basketball, soccer, or football, and the Olympics. We'll go in no particular order, but these moments capture everything that we love about sports. The athletic spectacle, the drama, the controversy, and the unbelievable. And we start with a bonus entry. It's not a sporting event that is necessarily a standout athletic achievement or a notable moment, but it's significant for another reason. The date is December 11th, 1981, and this is the final professional boxing match for Muhammad Ali. Ali was almost 40 years old and definitely past his prime. His fight against Larry Holmes in 1980, which resulted in his corner throwing in the towel, was dubbed the last hurrah. But Ali still wanted to keep going, and this resulted in the drama in the Bahamas. Ali faced the much younger Trevor Burbick, and even though Ali clearly wasn't his former self, he came out pretty decently, throwing some good jabs. Despite his age, this is still one of the greatest strikers the sport has ever seen. He carried that into the first few rounds, but ultimately couldn't last. Burbick dialed it up, and Ali was quickly worn out, and it was tough to watch. According to Ring TV, Davy Pearl, former referee and commentator for the fight, said, quote, I pray he never fights again. It was tough to see such a legend fade away, but that's what happened. And this actually wouldn't even be his final fight. Ali performed in a few exhibition fights in 1982 and then appeared in 1983 in a three-round bout against Edmonton Oilers on-ice enforcer Dave Semenko. 
But as far as professional fights go, December 11th, 1981 was the final bout for one of the most legendary athletes in history. And we officially start the list. And for Canadians, when it comes to hockey, there are three distinct game-winning goals that are embedded in Canadian history. In 1972, Paul Henderson scored a last-minute winner to steal the victory over the Soviet Union in the Summit Series, an event that turned into something bigger than a sporting competition, but also became a Cold War political battle pitting the East against the West. In 2010, at the Winter Olympic Games, Sidney Crosby scored the Golden Goal, the overtime clincher against the Americans to win the gold medal. And then there's 1987. Held in late August, the Canada Cup featured Canada, the US, the Soviet Union, what was then Czechoslovakia, Sweden, and Finland. Games were spread throughout Canada, with one round robin game between the US and Soviets held in Hartford, Connecticut. The Soviets defeated Sweden in the semifinals, while Canada defeated Czechoslovakia to force a final showdown against their longtime adversaries in a best of three final. The Soviets win game one in overtime by a score of six to five. It was the exact same score for game two, this time in double overtime and in favor of Canada. It all came down to game three held in Hamilton, Ontario at Cops Coliseum. Tied 5-5 late in the third period, the face-off is in Canada's end. The draw is won by Canada and the legendary Mario Lemieux chips it up out of the zone to a streaking Wayne Gretzky followed closely by Larry Murphy. With only one Russian defenseman back, it looked like a clear two-on-one with Gretzky and Murphy. But Gretzky drops the puck back to Lemieux, who, covered by two Soviet players, takes the puck in and scores the winner, with only 1.26 remaining. If you're a hockey player or you've seen this goal, you can see how clearly Larry Murphy is open with no one covering him. He seems like the obvious person to take the pass, but with all due respect, Mario Lemieux was the trailer on the play. In Grexy's autobiography, he explains that even though Larry Murphy is a tremendous hockey player, there was no way he was getting that puck. After the goal, the stadium goes berserk, as does a lot of Canada. It had been a long time since we had such a breathtaking hockey moment like this. Canada wins the game 6-5 all three games finishing with the exact same score. I've been to Cops Coliseum many times. Today, it's the first Ontario Centre. And I've been fortunate to walk the floor and trace out the play just like it happened back in 1987. It's a pretty surreal feeling to be in the same spot where such a famous moment happened. Apologies to all my English friends and family, but for England, the 1986 World Cup was unforgettable, but for all the wrong reasons. Held in Mexico, Diego Maradona of Argentina seemed to be in his absolute prime and set to face England in the quarterfinals. With Argentina down 1-0, Maradona takes the ball himself, working his way into a swarm of English players. He ends up chopping the ball to his right side and makes a beeline for the net. As the ball comes in, the shorter Maradona jumps for a header 
at the same time as the English goalkeeper who's coming out to punch it away. Maradona gets his head on the ball to tie the game. Immediately, though, the English players are incensed, calling for a handball. Maradona even seems to look over at the officials after scoring. The first replay didn't seem conclusive until a shot from the on-field camera, where it appeared as if Maradona hand-punched the ball as much as he had headed it. With no video review assistance for the referees, the goal stood. And then, five minutes later, Maradona went on to score one of the greatest goals of all time to put Argentina up 2-1 and secure the victory over England. Argentina would go on to beat Belgium in the semifinals and defeat what was then West Germany to capture the 1986 World Cup. The controversial goal soon became known as the Hand of God goal. This came from a quote given by Maradona when asked how he scored it. He replied, quote, a little with the head of Maradona, a little with the hand of God. In the coming years, Maradona would confess that he used his hand to score the goal. Tennis has always been a big thing in my family. We always watched the majors with a special focus on each year's Wimbledon. This entry isn't one moment, but several, all involving the same two extraordinary athletes, Chris Evert and Martina Navratilova. Going from the 70s into the 80s, the two dominated tennis and were fierce rivals. Their 1978 Wimbledon final is one of the greatest women's matches ever. From 1980 to 1988, they met each other in every Grand Slam event. Everett beat Navratilova at the 1980 Wimbledon, while Navratilova beat Everett at the U.S. and Australian Open in 1981. In 82, Everett won their matchup at the Australian Open, while Navratilova defeated her at Wimbledon. Their 1984 matchup at the U.S. Open was another notable moment. Navratilova is riding a 54-match winning streak. And this was just one short of the record 55 straight wins held by Chris Everett. Navratilova won and kept this streak going to 74 straight wins, a record that still stands to this day. The two traded back and forth between world number one, and their rivalry is the stuff of legend. They met 80 times with Navratilova winning 43 to Everett's 37. And they faced each other in an incredible 60 finals, with Navratilova again taking the edge, beating Everett in 36 of those finals. Navratilova also won six straight Wimbledon titles from 1982 to 1987. It's one of the great sports rivalries in history, and in the 80s, we all got a front row seat to see it. But then also, later in the 80s, a new challenger was on the scene as a young Steffi Graf was about to dominate the sport in her own way. We all love a good Cinderella story, and that's what March Madness is all about. The NCAA College Basketball Tournament has produced moments that are so overly dramatic, they border on unrealistic. But they're all real, and that's why we tune in, as you never know what you might see. And that was the case in 1983 with NC State. 
North Carolina State was the sixth seed in the tournament, which isn't super low, but the 83 tournament was stacked with powerhouse teams and players like Virginia and Houston. The tagline for this team was Survive and Advance, the same name given to a 30 for 30 documentary all about this team. In the first round, they needed double OT to beat Pepperdine. They won their next few games by only one point, giving them the nickname, the Cardiac Kids. This took them to the final four, where they beat Georgia, taking them to the final and one of the biggest upsets ever by defeating Houston, with the game finishing with a virtual buzzer-beating dunk by Lorenzo Charles to give NC State the win, 54-52. to That Houston team featured both Clyde Drexler and Hakeem Olajuwon. And that whole team had to watch in shock at what had just happened. NC State, a remarkable team, a remarkable run, and a remarkable finish to an all-time great sporting moment. Next, we move into the world of baseball and two legendary moments. One that's iconic, and another one that many fans would rather forget. Everything 80s will return after these messages. Sorry, Boston fans, but you know where this is going. Bill Buckner was drafted straight out of high school and played in the Dodgers Association. When he got to the majors, he spent some time between playing the outfield and first base. Eventually, he moved primarily to the first base position. Buckner, who went to the All-Star Game in 1981, eventually found himself playing for the Boston Red Sox. And that takes us to 1986. The Red Sox defeated the Angels in the AL Championship before going on to face the New York Mets in the World Series. Buckner was nursing some leg injuries, but the Sox found themselves up three games to two in the best-of-seven final. And that takes us to Game 6. After nine innings, the game is tied 3-3 and heading into extra innings. At the top of the 10th, the Sox went up 5-3. Things were looking good. In the bottom of the 10th, the Mets scored two to tie the game. At bat now is Mookie Wilson, who hit what looked like a routine grounder up the first baseline but the ball goes through Buckner's legs, allowing Ray Knight to score the winning run. The Mets win the game and go on to win the World Series in Game 7. It's a moment that's been played an infinite amount of times and probably always will be. The missed ball is a terribly unfortunate play, but it's unfair to blame Bill Buckner for the loss. Remember, the Red Sox were up 5-3, to three, and multiple singles allowed runners to advance and score, and then pitcher Bob Stanley threw a wild pitch that allowed for the tying run. Unfortunately, this still remains one of the most famous sporting moments of not just the 80s, but ever. We may as well keep this baseball theme going, and that's with one of the greatest plate appearances in the history of the game. It's Game 1 of the 1988 World Series, pitting the Oakland A's up against the LA Dodgers. 
The great Kurt Gibson had been battling some injuries and his knees and hamstring were causing major problems. Going into the ninth inning, LA was trailing and down to their last out. This is when legendary manager Tommy Lasorda made the call and we see Kurt Gibson hobble his way to the plate. Despite his injuries, he was still a tremendous hitter. Hopefully, he could produce some magic. And if you got to watch this game or have ever seen the highlights, you know magic is exactly what happened. Gibson was clearly hurting, and despite fouling off some pitches, worked his way to a full count. With his team down 4-3 and facing an elite pitcher in Dennis Eckersley, Gibson did the seemingly impossible by blasting a two-run walk-off homer. As the crowd is in delirium, the image of Gibson barely able to run around the bases has become an iconic image. The Dodgers win the game 5-4 and go on to win the World Series. The most amazing part, because of all those injuries he had, that was Kurt Gibson's only appearance. Gymnastics is an amazing sport. The power, precision, and athleticism of these athletes is off the charts. I don't know enough about the scoring details, but what seems like a flawless routine can end up with a lower score due to some technical details that may seem hard for the average viewer to catch. But at the 1984 Summer Olympics, we witnessed perfection. In 1976, a perfect 10 was scored by Nadia Comaneci. At the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, the Soviet Union had boycotted the Games. But the Games carried on. Four foot nine inch Mary Lou Retton entered the night of August 3rd, the final night of the competition, leading all the other athletes in the women's all around event. Retton had already scored a 10 for the floor exercise. But to capture gold meant having to nail a perfect 10 on the very last event, the vault. As she runs towards the vault, it looks like a blur of speed, and she perfectly launches off the vault, soars and twists through the air before sticking an absolutely perfect landing. And then came the scores, a perfect 10. After this incredible performance, Mary Lou Retton instantly becomes a genuine star and one of the most recognized athletes in North America and around the world. The American team went to Disneyland along with a ticker tape parade in New York. Retton was named Sportswoman of the Year by Sports Illustrated. Retton also received what may be one of the ultimate sports accolades an athlete can get by being the cover of a Wheaties box the very first female athlete to be featured on the front of the iconic cereal. Speaking of the Olympics, the men's 100-meter final is often a showcase event at the Summer Olympics, and that was exactly the case at the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, South Korea. What started out as a remarkable sporting achievement would soon be remembered for all the wrong reasons. The men's 100-meter finals that year featured a stacked lineup, but much of the focus was on American Carl Lewis and Canadian Ben Johnson. With all the hype, everything was over in less than 10 seconds. 
Ben Johnson put on a performance for the ages, winning the race and capturing gold in a historic 9.79 seconds. The power and speed of Ben Johnson was astonishing, and he had just smashed the world record. All of Canada celebrated this incredible achievement, but it wouldn't last long. Just 24 hours after the historic race, Ben Johnson tested positive for steroids. As word slowly spread, it seemed unbelievable. For a little kid like me, this was a hard thing to swallow. And it was the first time I had ever heard the word steroids. All we knew was that Ben Johnson cheated and he had to give back his gold medal. In the coming years, we would find out that what at the time seemed like the greatest 100-meter final in history was also known as the dirtiest race in history. According to CNN, only two of the eight finalists remained clean throughout their careers. Four of the competitors that day ran a sub-10-second 100 meters in that race. During the moment, it was the height of sporting achievement, but it soon all came crashing down. Some athletes transcend sports to become true icons. They become larger than life and become recognized around the world. You know you're a true icon when just your silhouette becomes recognizable in a huge part of pop culture. It's not that Michael Jordan hadn't been dominating basketball in the 80s, but at the 1988 All-Star Game, he took it to a new level. February 9th, 1988 was the night of the NBA Slam Dunk Contest. It had a big fight feel, putting Dominique Wilkins up against Michael Jordan. The event took place in Chicago, so the crowd was decidedly pro-Jordan. In the early rounds, Jordan dunked with a reverse slam, and Wilkins followed with a one-handed 360 jam. We get to the semifinals, and Jordan walks up to the foul line and appears to be staring a hole into it. He then walks to the far end of the court, and then quickly takes off towards the net with what was an unplanned dunk. As he hits the foul line, Jordan leaps into the air and appears to defy gravity floating through the air toward the rim before slamming the ball down. The two then traded back and forth with some more jaw-dropping dunks, such as Wilkins's one-handed windmill jam and Jordan repeating the foul line dunk again. The power of Dominique Wilkins is still extraordinary to this day, but it was the night when Jordan seemed to really fly. When you watch these dunks in slow motion, it does look like Jordan defies gravity. Not like Elphaba, but at the point where it seems as if he should start dropping back to the ground, he continues to move through the air. One of the amazing things about Michael Jordan is how he almost looked like he was jumping even higher while still in midair. On the first foul line dunk, it looks as if he could travel another three or four feet. The 1988 slam dunk contest was a battle for the ages between two legends. Like I said, it felt like a heavyweight title fight, and it created some iconic imagery and is probably still the greatest slam dunk contest in history. We had already witnessed it a lot during the 80s, 
But this was the night when Michael Jordan truly took flight. And last but not least, we return to the world of hockey. And it's probably pretty obvious what I'm finishing with. Every Olympic Games is remembered for some specific moments. But the Winter Olympics of 1980 is remembered for one moment. And even the moment, if you want to go that far. The Soviet ice hockey team at the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid is still considered one of the greatest ever assembled. The American side was the complete opposite. A bunch of young college players with basically no professional experience. Not only were the Soviets a powerhouse by Soviet standards, they had won the last four gold medals and hadn't even lost an Olympic game since 1968. The Americans made it through the opening round but had to face the Soviets in the semifinals. With nothing to lose, the young scrappy Americans played a game for the ages. Even though down 3-2 going into the third, the Americans were somehow still in it. Nine minutes into the third, they tied it. This should not be happening. They then took the lead. With 10 minutes still left in the game, the Americans battled like their lives depended on it. In front of a raucous home crowd, the final seconds counted down with one of the greatest calls and moments in the history of sports. The thing that's easily overlooked here is that this wasn't even the gold medal game. That would come a few days later, when the Americans beat Finland 4-2. It's always hard to compare what happened on that night of February 22nd to other sports. I look at it like a junior college basketball team beating Michael Jordan and the Bulls in their prime. It's like a team at the bottom of the fifth league in English football knocking off Man City or the 2007-2008 Manchester United team. Regardless, it was a Cold War battle that took place on the frozen ice. The Miracle on Ice game is not only one of the biggest upsets in sports history, but one of the most defining moments of the entire 1980s. These sporting moments just scratch the surface of all the amazing sports moments of the 80s. And there are many honorable mentions, such as in 1985 when Pete Rose set the all-time hits record in baseball. Speaking of baseball, there's the famous pine tar incident from 1983, when George Brett of the Kansas City Royals was called out after a home run because the umpires decided he had too much pine tar on his bat to improve his grip. After the call is made that he's out, a livid Brett comes screaming out of the dugout in one of the biggest blow-ups you'll ever see. In 1981, in the world of cricket, the Ashes were won by England, despite being down 1-0 against Australia, and odds of 500-1 to 1 of England coming back. If this is new to you, the Ashes is a test cricket series played between Australia and England, and it goes all the way back to the late 1800s. It comes from the first time England lost to Australia on home soil in August 1882. The Sporting Times newspaper didn't take it lightly and printed a mocking headline that served as an obituary for England 
and that, quote, the body will be cremated and the ashes taken back to Australia. A few weeks after this, an English cricket team went to tour Australia, vowing to return with the ashes, while the Australian team vowed to defend them. The 80s also gave us future CFL great Doug Flutie and the incredible Hail Mary pass in 1984 against Miami in the Orange Bowl. There's Jack Nicklaus winning the Masters in golf in 1986 at the age of 46. At the other end of the age spectrum, and also in 1986, a young Mike Tyson wins his first heavyweight championship at just 20 years of age. And to bookend this entire podcast, Tyson defeated one of the boxers we started this episode with, Muhammad Ali's final opponent, Trevor Burbick. It's kind of amazing to think that Trevor Burbick fought both Muhammad Ali and Mike Tyson within five years of each other. All of these are just more great sporting moments in a decade that was filled with them. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, there's plenty more where that came from. So be sure to check out my previous episodes for more 1980s goodness. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss out on new episodes. And if you're interested in any bonus 1980s content, you can check out patreon.com, which is a way to not only support the show, but get access to things like the Everything 80s Movie Review Podcast, where I review the good, the bad, and the ugly of 1980s movies. If you want to learn more, you can just head on over to patreon.com slash 80s, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash 80s, or click on the link in the description. So that's it for me. Thank you again for listening. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it. <laughs>